The Outline World Dispatch. It's Thursday, October 26, 2017. I'm Aaron Edwards. Today on the show, separating the fact and fiction of Russia's involvement in American activism and the Wild West of equity crowdfunding. Here's the dispatch. Power. By now, it's undeniable that the Russian government interfered in the 2016 U.S. presidential election to some degree, regardless of the extent. But recent reports on just what those efforts were might be overstating the effect of this interference. Outline staff writer Gabby Dovaye has been collecting some of those stories. Hi, Gabby. Hi, Aaron. Talk to me about some of these stories. What are they? So I think first we need to talk about why these stories are starting to come out now. Last month, the Washington Post and several other outlets reported that Russian operatives spent about $150,000 on around 3,000 political ads on Facebook. And some of them were very predictably like promoting anti-Muslim, anti-immigrant material and targeting Trump voters. But other ads were promoting things, groups that were adjacent to Black Lives Matter, groups that were pro-Muslim, pro-immigrant. And the goal here wasn't just to target people who were going to vote for Trump in the first place, but also people who were left-leaning to get them to question whether they should vote for Hillary Clinton. And a big part of this was not just buying these ads, but also making fake Facebook pages, Instagram pages, Twitter accounts that had all of these memes and then would slip in like anti-Clinton material. And one of the big outstanding questions is, did any of this actually have a profound effect, not only on the election, but on different groups of people? And you talk about how the the stories and the coverage around this sounded alarm bells about Russian propaganda. And basically everyone is saying, you know, pointing fingers at Russia, saying, you know, this group of people had a secret Instagram account that was run by Russian officials or, you know, uh, people who were connected to the Kremlin. And clearly they were, you know, infiltrated by Russia. And this is what people people are pointing fingers at as the reason that there's all this discord. Yeah, there are. BuzzFeed found four people who said that they were tricked into working with Russia without knowing it. And they were all left-leaning activists who were contacted by a group called Black Matters Us or Black Matters US. They didn't even know how to pronounce it. And the group ended up being a Kremlin-backed organization. These people didn't know it at the time. One of them organized protests on their behalf because they didn't have a protest organizer. One of them was paid to teach self-defense classes after the election um, because there was an uptick in hate crimes and a lot of people in cities all over the country decided they wanted to defend themselves. But other than that, most of these examples of Russian infiltration don't seem to have been very effective or very popular. CNN wrote about how Russians used Pokemon Go to target voters. And it was, I mean, they tried, but it didn't work. And if you were to read the headline, if you were to read even the first, like, five paragraphs of this, you wouldn't know that it didn't work. And the contest was this really bizarre thing where they were encouraging people to play Pokemon Go in places where people of color, generally black men, have been killed by police officers. And then when they caught a Pokemon to name it after the person who had been killed by a police officer. And then you take a screenshot and you upload it to some website. And I guess the best screenshot gets a $75 Amazon gift card. Like, it doesn't make sense. This was not, like, a widespread thing. 
people weren't doing this. But it CNN was, was framing it as, you know, this is a really big deal and it's connected to Russia in some way. Yeah, and it, I mean, it is a big deal that American racial tensions are so inflamed that anyone can look at this and exploit the pain that people are feeling for political gain. But then the, it, Russia's not creating these tensions. Russia's not making cops kill black people. That's an American problem. What are some other examples of these false campaigns that people were pegging to Russian operatives? Um, the Daily Beast found a YouTube account where two black men who said they were from Nigeria uh, talked about how the Clintons were racist and how Trump was the best option. Most of the black people in America think that Hillary is the one who is going to protect them and Hillary is the one who is going to fight for them. But hell no, Hillary Clinton is one of the dirtiest liars. They said they had 48,000 fans, but the most watched videos only got a couple hundred views. So it's like, if you have all of these fans and they're not watching your views, are they real people? Did you purchase them? And if they're not watching your videos, then does it even matter? You're just shouting into the void, basically. And again, it's not to say that this didn't happen or that it doesn't need to be reported, but that when you frame it as Russian infiltration of American activism, you then open up all of these groups to really baseless and unwarranted criticism from right-wingers and even from liberals who can, like, then dismiss things like Black Lives Matter as part of a greater Russian conspiracy. Something that struck me in your reporting is that these organizations and outlets who are reporting these things are not right-wing right wing publications. They're not fringe publications. They're the CNNs and the Daily Beasts and the BuzzFeed.coms. What do these publications need to be doing in the future to make sure that this disinformation doesn't spread? I don't think anyone who's reporting this has any interest in discrediting activism. I think they're doing their jobs and I think they're trying to present this information. But at the same time, there is so much mass panic that you need to take a step back and look at what you're writing, look at what you're reporting, and especially how you're framing it to make sure that it can't be taken and manipulated later. It all kind of comes back to clicks. I hate to call anything clickbait because there's so much valuable reporting here, but the way that it's framed is to make people so panicked or worried that they'll click on it, and then they'll see after reading, oh, well, only 50 people saw this. But if you don't read all the way, you might not ever realize that. So I guess just be careful in framing things, even if it seems less sexy or interesting. So just relax. Be careful. Yeah, just calm down. Yeah. Just chill out. Gabby Del Valle is a staff writer here at The Outline. Gabby, thanks so much for coming on the show and chatting with me. Thanks, Aaron. The future. Adrian Jeffries, a senior editor here at The Outline, recently invested about $200 in an alt-right-themed social media startup called Gab. The point of this experiment was to track how things go in the new field of equity crowdfunding, which is relatively new territory. It's where companies crowdsource actual investment for their business. So Adrian's here with an update on her ongoing series, which is called... Adventures in Equity Crowdfunding. Hi, Adrian. How are you? Hey, Aaron. Just to catch up, why did you invest in an alt-right social network? So I've been following this space, this equity crowdfunding space, which sounds very dull, but 
is actually pretty interesting for a long time. The Jobs Act of 2012, which was signed by Obama, loosened up a bunch of regulations that were supposed to create jobs and let people invest in more types of instruments. The general pitch was, so far, investors have to be elite in order to make money off of things like Facebook and other fast-growing businesses and startups. And the point of this provision in the Jobs Act was to democratize that and open it up to everybody. And people in the tech world were really excited about this. Basically, before, if you wanted to start a company, you'd go to like a VC right, or some really official-ish company or group of people who had a lot of money. Exactly. And now anybody can just throw a few cents, a few dollars into a company. And maybe if it blows up, they'll... Strike it rich. Yeah, it's kind of like the same idea as something like Kickstarter or GoFundMe where you say, you know, take a bunch of people and have them all contribute a little bit and we can come up with a couple million bucks and do something really serious. How long ago did you invest in Gab? It happened in August and uh, the reason that I chose Gab is because it is modeled off of the kind of fast-growing technology startup that people think of when they think of venture capital. So that's like Facebook, Twitter. It is basically a Twitter, YouTube, Facebook live streaming all rolled into one social network that caters to the alt-right. Are you rich now and or are you now a member of the alt-right? Do I have to worry about anything? No, actually the CEO of Gab (laughs) is not a big fan of me or my tweets. After the first story came out, he emailed me to basically say that he he thought I was very dumb. He can't really push you out or anything like that. Like you, I don't think so. No, I am now a shareholder, so uh, I have to get investment updates from them. And supposedly, I'm supposed to have a channel of input into the company. But this is all very new ground. It's like very wild west. You've been in this now for a few months, and you've been discovering new things about this wild west world of equity crowdfunding and the IRS is still not caught up to it. Yeah. So one question I had after I bought this was, oh, wait, do I need to declare this on my taxes? And so I called the IRS and they said, basically, we don't super know what you're talking about. (laughs) Um, Here's some related stuff, but... The conclusion was there isn't really any guidance from the IRS on this, which isn't surprising because the IRS tends to be kind of slow when stuff like this comes out. However, I spoke to a CPA and it's a lot clearer how the IRS would treat this stuff than it was for, say, cryptocurrencies. The first thing I learned is no, I do not need to pay taxes on it because you pay taxes when you make money and I have not made any money yet. I would not need to pay taxes on this investment unless Gab decided to start paying dividends or I sold the stock at some point for some return. If the company goes out of business, then I would also be able to take a deduction as a capital loss. How confident is Gab right now that it's going to eventually make money? 
Gab introduced a paying tier for subscribers. That's $5.99 a month. So that is the beginnings of a business model. And they're very confident about all aspects of their business. If it does get a significant user base, if it's bet that being, you know, basically Twitter for racists ends up being a big enough market, then there's a scenario where it could maybe make some money. I am skeptical that it will become a profitable business because I just don't think the market is that large. I also feel like Twitter for racists already exists. And, and it's it is Twitter. Called Twitter. Yeah. There's a lot of competition in the <laughs> right. Twitter for racists space. The CPA I spoke to about this, John Dixon, said he didn't think that this was a very good deal for investors. It does seem like a good setup for a company that is trying to raise a million dollars, and that seems to be what's happening. What are the next steps for you as an investor in this company? The next steps for me are to wait and watch and see what Gab does. I'm curious to see if I will learn anything more about the company because I'm supposed to be a shareholder than I would if I were just watching as an ordinary reporter from the outside. So far, it doesn't really seem like Gab is really looping its shareholders into much of what it's doing. There was one investment update that was sent out so far, and it said, basically, we closed our funding round and we decided to sue Google, which was basically a marketing stunt. What happens if you get rich, Adrian? Oh, don't worry, Aaron. I'll remember you. <laughs> Adrian Jeffries is a senior editor here at The Outline. We'll be checking back in from time to time to hear how this equity crowdfunding situation unfolds. And I hope she gets rich and doesn't forget me. Thanks, Adrian. Thank you. And so we've reached the end of another week. If you like what you're hearing, remember, you can catch us four days a week, Monday through Thursday. And if you like our show, why not share it with a friend over the weekend? I'm Aaron Edwards. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with more on Monday. Monday.